Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Gretchen Carlson has lived many lives. The small-town kid who became Miss America. The local and national broadcast journalist who threw in with Fox News, but wound up tearing down its creator and exposing a toxic work environment there. And since as an activist leading the battle against sexual harassment in the workplace. Here's my conversation with Gretchen Carlson. Gretchen Carlson, it's so good to see you. Thank you for making the time to join me. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. Even though I was born in New York, I've spent most of my life in the Midwest. We're fellow Midwesterners. Yes. Tell me about growing up in the, uh, you grew up sort of in an exurb of Minneapolis, St. Paul, a small town. Tell me about your family and your life there. Yeah, well, it was ideal, really. I grew up in this small town called Anoka, which it's only 14 miles north of Minneapolis, but it felt like we were pretty much in the country. But the claim to fame of Anoka is that it is the Halloween capital of the world. I saw that. Yes. Yes. I saw that. And so as a kid, that was just so spectacular because we felt like we lived in like a celeb town. <laughs> and uh, Halloween was just a huge- What are the benefits that accrue to you from living in the Halloween capital um, of the world? Well, lots of candy, uh, which yeah. for, for right, me well, was- Already it's registering with me. Yes. Uh, and especially as a kid. And uh, also we have the second largest parade in the state of Minnesota uh, around Halloween time as a result of that. So- it really is this wonderful sort of community building event. And that's how we got the award, actually, because back in, I think it was the 1930s or so, apparently teenagers on the eve of Halloween would be bad um, and they would go out and, and create havoc. And so apparently my town was the first one to come up with community-based family programs wow. the night before Halloween. And and so we actually have, this will mean something to you, we have this congressional seal that's in the uh, front of our town hall right into the cement in the ground. One time when I was uh, on, on TV, I, on Halloween, I did a debate between the mayor of my hometown of Anoka and the mayor of Salem, Massachusetts, and they went head to head about who really had the Halloween <laughs> capital of the world. And uh, well, anyway, I was a little biased, but... Yeah, but but they had witches, right? So, I know, I yeah, know. So that, we were nicer. Hey, let me ask you, well, let me ask you about your family. Now, you're all, you're all Swedish, is that... Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Jan Telesvenska. Like, yeah. Uh, and and it, when did your family come over? Um, it actually, you know, a long time ago, I, I was on one of those Finding Your Roots show with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. And uh, and and one of my um, relatives came over and then served in the Civil War um, on the on the right side of of the fence and um, survived that. 
But I would say that that on one side, they came over my great-great-grandparents, and I believe on the other, my great-great-great-grandparents. So it it was sort of an anomaly that my parents actually hooked up and were still 100% Swedish because both of the sides of the family had been here for you know the same amount of time almost. And they're both from the same small region in Sweden, which is really fascinating. That, yeah, that is. And uh, your grandfather was a minister. Your dad, mm-hmm. a small businessman. Yeah, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was a Lutheran minister. And he really taught me, well, first of all, humility. Also to have a good sense of humor. And he, um, he also taught me my drive and determination because... When he came to our church, it was a small church. And within maybe 10 to 15 years, he had made it the second largest Lutheran church in America. And so we had 8,500 members before, before megachurches. You know, this was back in the 70s. And um, so, you know, it made going to church kind of more fun, actually, um, <laughs> because I thought, I thought of him as like a rock star in the pulpit. And uh, I was blessed to have him in my life. He married me. He baptized my first child. He died three weeks before my second child was born. But um, I learned so many life lessons from him. And my my parents, I sort of have reverse stereotypical role model parents. Uh, my mom is the driving force in my life and the inspiration for me to be gutsy and go for every goal in front of me. And um, my dad is the softy. And, um, you know, I learned how to be compassionate and philanthropic and a million other things from my dad. And they really ran a a small uh, car dealership together. It was in my family for 100 years. And my mom ended up running it for the last 10 years of it. Yeah, it's it's probably what she should have been doing her whole life, but she was busy raising us, thankfully. Not an uncommon story. Yeah, yeah. So they just sold it in uh, 2019 after... A hundred years. Now, I read somewhere that, and people would not guess this, but I ask for a reason, that you were uh, maybe a little pudgy as a kid. <laughs> yeah, back to the candy story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love to eat. It's still my favorite hobby. And um, my mom was like this gourmet chef, which didn't help matters. And um, I, I think it was a blessing, actually, because... I learned how to build my self-esteem from the inside of my soul instead of instead of like all of the exterior um, emphasis that we put on kids, especially today with with social media. And I was happy, you know, um, I, I just never was unhappy until I got to 10th grade and I wanted to date this guy. And I overheard him in the halls of school saying that he thought that I was, you know, smart you know, funny young woman, but that I was just too fat. And it just, you know, I think it was finally at that point after puberty and I was like, well, maybe I should should be more healthy. Um, And so I, you know, I lost a a bunch of weight, but, you know, I was a really serious violinist as a child. And so that really helped me to build my self-confidence. It was something that nobody could take away from me. And the same thing with being smart in school. You know, I, I really excelled academically, and I always tell parents now when they say to me, like, how do I develop a gutsy kid who's, you know, achieves a lot of goals? And I'm like, stop talking about the exterior and let them build who they are from from the inside. And so I feel fortunate that I, you know, had that, um, had that cross to bear for a while, and I still struggle with my weight. I've just learned how to 
manage it a little bit better. But um, you know, we all have our we all have our things that that are either big or small in our life, and that happens to be something for me. I heard uh, you mentioned tenth grade. I heard that there was this one catastrophic day <laughs> in tenth grade for you when you were defeated in your campaign for. You know, I always go to campaigns. <laughs> your campaign for class president, and you were rejected for a role in the school play, and you were rejected from some dance troupe. And it was your grandfather, the minister who built the big church, who told you to get off your duff. And <laughs> yeah, is that, well, is that an accurate story? Yeah, you you did some research on my memoir, uh, Getting Real. But uh, yeah, it was a really really bad day, and uh, he said to me. Do you realize, you know, how many times it took Thomas Edison to develop the light bulb? You know, it was thousands of times. And uh, he also referred back to Abraham Lincoln and, you know, his political career that didn't start out as smooth in the beginning. And um, and I never I never forgot that. You know, that was a life lesson of, as we all know, now that we're mature adults, that failures are what really bring you to success and certainly make you understand um, the, the, the feeling of success in a much better way. And we all need to we all need to have failures. So, yeah. You mentioned that you were kind of a violin prodigy, and you got accepted to Juilliard, and uh, could have gone and pursued your career in music, but you went to Stanford instead. Why? I burned out when I was seventeen. You know, at that point, I was practicing four to five hours a day. I was, you know, performing with symphonies. I mean, it really was my career as a as a child. My parents wanted me to have as much of a normal upbringing as possible, so I would study with the the preeminent violin teacher in the world. Quite honestly, at at Juilliard, um, I would go there occasionally from Minnesota, and then I for seven summers as a child, I went to the Aspen Music Festival where many of the Juilliard kids transfer, and the teacher came there. So I went for nine weeks of intensive training instead of moving to New York City as as a child. My parents wanted me to try to have as much balance in my life. But, you know, honestly, I, I, I've always liked to, to do so many different things that it really hit me when I was 17 that if I wanted to become the famous concert violinist that I, that I was striving to be, that I would have to give up everything else in my life. And I wasn't willing to do that. And I also had seen older musicians who, for whatever reason, my perception was that they weren't happy. And that, you know, really had a, a, a huge impact on me. And so, yeah, I decided to, uh, my parents my, my parents were so devastated, um, not because of the money they had put into me taking all those lessons, but because they really felt like I was throwing away this talent that I had honed, you know, for so many years. And I just put the violin in a closet and went off to Stanford. And I never had any desire to pick it up until I got a phone call from my mom about something she wanted me to try and do. Right. Well, I want to ask you about that. But you, um, you went, what were you studying at Stanford? I couldn't decide on a major. And luckily, at Stanford, you don't have to declare until you're a junior. I think I declared like 15 different times. I just was trying absolutely everything. I ended up self-designing my own major, which they allowed you to do there, which was an emphasis in industrial engineering as well as organizational behavior. Hmm. So had I used that major in the Long real world- Long way from violin. I know, I know, but I would have been like a, a corporate consultant or a problem solver. And I was on my way to law school, actually. I'd taken the, the LSATs um, and then my life sort of went in another mysterious direction. Let me ask you about this because your, you said your mom had an idea. 
you were at Oxford for when you're in your sophomore year, and your mom called and said, you should think about this Miss America contest. And apparently, <laughs> you were a Miss Teen uh, Minnesota or something. And I- I'm wondering why your mom thought that was a good idea. <laughs> good question. Um, yeah, so I didn't tell anyone in high school that I was doing this teen thing, which was uh, based totally on talent, um, interview, academics, volunteer service. Um, those are the categories. And I ended up becoming first runner up nationally. And that really, as my dad said at the time, um, I guess it, it really got under my skin because I always wondered, like, what, why didn't I win, quite honestly? Um, <laughs> and, and so in the back of my mind, I was thinking about that. But I had, n- I had never watched Miss America on TV. I was a tomboy growing up. As we said, I struggled with my weight. And I was at Oxford and I got a phone call from my mom and she said, I found something perfect for you to do. And I was like, what? And she goes, well, I got this brochure in the mail and it says that 50% of a candidate's points in Miss America are based on talent and you have that. And 30% is based on interview and, and you're smart. So I think you can do this. And I was like, mom, I'm from Minnesota. That is not really a pageant state. Mom, I play classical violin. It's never won. And number three, I'm short. And she wasn't hearing any of it. So um, like I said earlier, my mom was just this huge believer in me. And um, I I sort of felt like I didn't really have a choice, to be honest. Look, Gretchen, uh, this is the reason I ask. And let me just confess at the beginning that like every other young guy of of a certain generation, I I glanced at the Miss America contest. Um, I heard Burt Parks sing there she is for a hundred times yeah. or whatever. But the other 20%, the other 20% that your mom didn't mention, that's peering in a swimsuit. Yep. That's appearing in an evening ground. That's twirling around so people could examine you like chattel. Yeah. I mean, that is really, uh, you've spent so much of these last several years fighting against the objectification of of women. Did how did you feel when you were standing there in front of the world in your swimsuit? Completely uncomfortable. It was, you know, it was something that unfortunately I had to do if I wanted to win. Uh, it was 10% of my points and I knew that I would never be in in any way at the top of the list of winning that particular category, which is why I knew that I had to do so well in in playing my violin and in in the interview process. And, you know, when you become Miss America, you don't, in fact, it's against the rules to appear anywhere in a swimsuit publicly. So, um, you know, it, it was something that at the time I had to do if I wanted to win. I think it's ironic, two ways. Ironic that, you know, I have spent um, most of my life, even before I sued Roger Ailes at Fox News, fighting for women's rights. So that is ironic. And also that all of these years later, when I became chair of the board for Miss America um, five years ago or so, that, you know, unanimously as a board, we took away swimsuit because we believed that um, no longer in our society was that a correct thing for women to strut around in a bikini with four inch heels on while they were playing their violin and earning scholarship dollars to go to college. So you know, I guess I came full circle on that. That was pretty controversial, though. It, you ultimately got bounced out of there because of the no, your, the positions no, that no, you no, took. No, 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 no. I didn't get no. I after I secured the NBC deal for Miss America for the following year, um, 
I had had enough because there because there was a lot of controversy over doing what was the right thing to do for that organization based on where our society was. But no, I left under my free will. Okay, that's fine. But the, but the point is that there was a lot of yep. resistance to the idea that these things should not be so focused on that. Because I'm thinking about what you said earlier about your life lesson, which is to focus on the inside and not on the outside. And, you know, that it kind of leads to questions about, well, first of all, why did you decide that television news was the thing you wanted to do? Yeah. So I had had an interest in that as a child because TV crews would come and, and interview me about my music. And it was fascinating to me because there were a lot of similarities between performing on stage and being in front of a television camera. And then I put it aside because I was, as I said, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. But during my year as Miss America, I mean, it's massive communication training mm -hmm. where you're standing up in front of new people every single day and giving speeches with no notes and sometimes completely without notice. And you're also doing a lot of television interviews. And it rekindled my interest in that. And so I knew my LSATs were good for five years. And so I thought, well, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to law school. And then the rest is sort of history. I, you know, I started in Richmond, Virginia. I basically knew nothing. And within the first six months, I got a new boss and she um, determined that I was going to be the political reporter. And mm. I was like, me? Because back then, this was when Governor Wilder was the governor of Virginia and had a brief run for president as the first African-American. And I was covering him on a daily basis. And I was one of very few women at that time uh, covering him. And then I moved on to, to Cincinnati and then I moved on to Cleveland and then to Dallas and then to CBS News and then to Fox News. So I never did make it to law school, although it's still on my bucket list. You could have saved yourself a lot of fees probably if you... Uh... <laughs> No doubt. I'm kind of a half lawyer now after everything I've been through. I bet you are. I bet you are. Was the Miss America experience a help or a hindrance in those early years? Both. Um, definitely a hindrance as far as the stereotypical thought process of many people in newsrooms when I would be the new kid on the block. And I came to understand that every time I moved to a new job, I knew what was going on behind the scenes before I got there, which was Oh, great. They hired some bimbo, you know. And so I felt like I, I mean, as a woman, you have to work doubly hard anyway, but then I, I had to work triply hard as a farmer's America. And my goal every single time was to disprove what the stereotype was. And I, I succeeded at, at doing that. In fact, that first woman boss that I had, one of the best things she ever did for me was in front of a, a morning editorial meeting. She said to all the other reporters, you should all come to this meeting as well prepared as Gretchen Carlson, who comes every single day with three story ideas. And she really sort of leveled the playing field. For I'm sure me. that made you popular with your colleagues. But, you well, know, that's you know, listen, it, it, it really it leveled the playing field like that. I was a serious person. Mm -hmm. I and, got you. You know, and, and look, why do we why do we automatically think that women who um, who happen to be attractive in some people's eyes are stupid like that the, that's that is how we have socialized our kids to grow up thinking and you know that followed me for for quite some time we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. We should stipulate that you covered a lot of significant stories over the course of your career before you got to Fox News, including 9-11 and a whole bunch of other things, and you were at CBS News as a national correspondent for five years. What made you jump to Fox? Opportunity. It was um, it was an opportunity to do a five-day-a-week national morning TV show, which had always been my goal in life. When I was at CBS, I was also doing a morning show, but I was only doing it on the weekends, and there wasn't going to be any movement there for me to go Monday through Friday. And so this opportunity came and it was strictly me and, um, you know, my ambition. I remember yeah. my mom, my mom happened to be with me that first day and she was visiting New York and I'll never forget it because she said to me, this must be one of the happiest days of your life, career wise. And I've thought about that a lot since now because it was pretty happy the first day and then it, it pretty much went downhill mm-hmm. from there. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about that whole experience because it isn't just the experience of being judged from the outside isn't just in pageants, but there's an element of that in television as well. People, if you're homely, you tend not to be the one that people pick. Leaving the talent issue aside, let's stipulate the talent. But if two people have talent and one of them looks good in front of a camera and one of them doesn't, and that's particular. I mean, not limited to women, but it's particularly true. And it seems like, judging from everything that you've said and written, and I know been proscribed from saying everything, but but we know that Fox News, in particular, that was something that was emphasized, that Roger Ailes emphasized. And so I'm wondering, you know, you've said and you've said this approvingly that you know CBS took Miss America out of your bio, but Roger Ailes said, I want to stress that. And like looking back, does it seem to you as if maybe he liked that too much? 
I definitely think that's what caught his attention about why he wanted to to bring me in to see if I would be the the right fit. Uh, he he actually used to say to me frequently, like, why don't you talk about being Miss America on the air? And I was like, because that's not important. And he was like, well, you know, I, I'd like you to talk more about that. Um, so yeah, I I mean, I'm sure that that was one of the reasons that that he wanted to interview me for that position. But I think what ended up happening was that he was like, oh, shit, she's really smart. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that started to present some some other issues. Talk about Roger Ailes. You know, I, I actually I probably met him before you met him because he and I were on other opposite sides of a campaign. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I won. So don't be sorry. Oh, OK, good. But and I came honestly, I came to know him reacquaint myself with him during the Obama years. We used to have these conversations uh, surreptitiously so as not to destroy each other's careers. I know all about that. Yeah. But he was, you know, as my in my experience, Roger brilliantly created a network to talk to people like Roger, of which there are many in the country, but deeply paranoid. And a lot of that pervaded sort of how he guided his network. Now, the only way the world could judge Fox News in, from the standpoint of sexism was just how women seem to be featured, treated, and so on on screen. You said the thing went downhill from the beginning. Talk about that. I can't. That's the problem. You know, I. that's why my mission in life now is to make sure people own their own voice and their own stories. So Free them from uh, non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's how that's how predators have kept all their dirty laundry secret for all of these years. Um, and so, I wish I could. I wish I could talk about my experience there. I mean, ironically, he did. He did an interview uh, after my case settled, and it was supposed to be posthumously. So, you know, in the event that he died, it would mm-hmm. be printed because. Because he maligned me in in this interview, and that was he was also barred from saying anything about me. Um, and then, ironically, he died the next week, and so they they printed the story. Um, so he got he got in what he thought was his last words about me. But I, um, up until this point, have not been able to say anything about my time there that would be in any way. Um, disparaging or, you know, talk about anyone there that I worked with. I have been able to, I mean, on advice of my attorneys, which I have to check with all the time, you know, it's almost David, like my my brain has to work on overdrive when I talk about all these things, because I have to think while I'm talking, can I say this? And so I can comment to the extent that I want to about um, news events that have happened since I have been there, but I wouldn't be able to talk about any people who were there when I was there, if that makes sense. All right. Well, let, let me let me um, ask you this. I want to step step away from your own experience. We'll get back to that. But I, I mentioned that Roger created the state a network to talk to people like him. He came from a very conservative background in Ohio, kind of the sort of tinted by Bircherism sort of thing. But a lot of what he brought to the air reflected the kind of conspiratorial nature of those things. And so, and I know you said somewhere that he had you wrote, I guess, that he had in maybe in your in your book in 2015 that he had this brilliant insight that people get all this news and really what they want are opinions 
but it seems to me that he also offered opinions as news. Yeah, uh, I wish I could comment on that. I will stand by the statement that I think that when he uh, started Fox News, that it was having nothing to do with what the content was. It was a smart idea because people were already getting their news headlines during the day at work. And when they came home, they, I think, were interested in hearing what people thought about those news headlines. But that certainly changed dramatically over the time that I was there from from what Fox was like when I started, um, you know, to, to what it ended up being when I left and certainly what it has become in, in the almost seven years since I have not been there. So I'm trying to think what else I can say. No, about no. Well, this, let but- me. Well, well, some of the things that sort of stick out in my mind from my own experiences, because I interacted with Fox fairly frequently when I was doing what I was doing, uh, working for president and for presidential campaigns and so on. And, you know, one of them that sticks out in my head was a story that Obama had been educated in a madrasa. You probably remember this story. Oh, yes. And it was not true. Other news organizations went and out, and but it was, but it it entered the ether, and it fed this kind of nativism that that never really went away. About well, is this guy really an American? Is he, you know, is he Muslim? Is he Christian? Is he? And it was. Um, it gave uh, Trump the platform to pick it up with birtherism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I wish I could talk about. I wish I could talk about that. Let me. Let me, let me. Well, let me, let me, let me just ask you this. Okay. Do you think that Fox News has contributed to the sort of, to Trumpism, to the deep divisions that we have in the country today? It seems to me Fox is a very powerful force. Yes, of course. Now, are you allowed to talk to that? Yes, of course they have in capital letters. Yes. That's what I'm, that's what I'm intimating when I, when I say especially in, since the Trump era. Um, yes, I, I think that, that the lies that they have told, uh, specifically about January 6th and the 2020 election, are a complete disservice to the American public and a threat to our democracy. And, um, you know, I wrote a whole op-ed about this after the Tucker Carlson firing, that unless they clean house of every single person. Unrelated, by the way, we should point that oh, out. Oh, gosh, please. I always say that on Twitter. Please. One time <laughs> one time on Twitter, a couple of people were like, are you his wife? And I, was, I almost passed out. But, um, you know, Carlson in the Scandinavian world is like the biggest, uh, thickest part of the phone book, if you remember yeah, it's that. It's like Smith, right? It is, yeah. 100%. And said, oh, yeah, no no relation. But but anyway, I wrote a whole op and that unless they, they clean house from you know every person who espoused all the lies, whether they were on air or not, including all of the executives who knew about it, thanks to the Dominion lawsuit. Um, you know they all they all need to go if they really truly are going to say that they're trying to do a good service for the American public. And the other thing I will say is that there's a huge difference between spewing lies and having a dialogue between a conservative and a liberal voice. I mean. That is what it's transformed into. And I don't know if you remember when Hannity Combs had their show together, but that was actually, you know, that was actually a debate, a debate between a conservative and a a liberal. Right. I have to say, I always, I always watched that and I felt like it was the 
I, but I, but I always felt I know Alan Combs has has passed on. And I don't want mean to impugn him in any way, but it felt a little like the Harlem Globetrotters playing the Washington <laughs> Generals. Like you kind of knew who was going to win the game in the end. One hundred percent. I'm, I, I'm with you on that. And I wish I could talk about how I knew all that was set up too. Yeah, yeah. So talk about. Uh, well, I should ask you about the Dominion suit. What, what 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 was your reaction when all of these leaks started coming out mm-hmm. about? these admissions that people were making about knowing that the things that were being said on Fox weren't true, and they were the ones who were saying them. Relieved. That was my first gut instinct, uh, because those people had a voice and I don't. Um, Also, how stupid the Fox executives were and News Corp to allow it to get to that point. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm like a half lawyer. Like I, I know enough from talking to my lawyers that you, you never get to depositions with your top executives, I, especially if they have things to say like those people did. So, you know, look, I think it, I think that that lawsuit was a great service to the American public, and and a lot of people were upset, including me initially when they settled the case. But I still think that. We learned so much from it, and we got so much of a feeling of what was going on there that um, other than seeing some of the the hosts, you know, up on the stand where ostensibly they had to tell the truth, you know, that would have been great theater. But uh, I think we learned a tremendous amount, and I'll just bring it back full circle that I was completely relieved. The same thing about Abby Grossberg's lawsuit, you know, which I actually believe is the real reason Tucker Carlson got fired. This was a sexual harassment suit against against him. Well, against against uh, Fox, but also against, uh, you know, his team of, of producers. And but it was also she was she's also claimed, of course, that they pressured her to lie about Dominion as well. So it's a, it's a multifaceted lawsuit. But, um, you know, I think she's she's the latest iteration of Gretchen Carlson at Fox News. Mm-hmm. And. You know, she and I have been in dialogue because I know what that feels like and I know the incoming that she's taking. And um, I also think she learned a lot from me and I think that has served her well. So talk about your own experience and in, in ways that you can talk about it because you can't talk about your own feelings. You had become more outspoken over time. You walked off the set on Fox and Friends when a sexist remark was made. You, I think, really laudably appeared on on camera without makeup uh-huh. to make a point about this very thing that we've been talking about. And ultimately, you got moved out of the Fox and Friends job into a job that was a lesser job, a lesser anchor job, and then run out of the company. You wrote, as I said earlier, sort of laudingly about, although you choose your words carefully, about Roger Ailes' But, but let me two- clarify why I had to do that. So my memoir was written in 2015. I was still yes. an employee of Fox News. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to have to put on my head again of what I can say and what I can't. But um, every single book at Fox goes through several different people there. And, and you just come to know that unless you praised Roger Ailes with a certain amount of accolades and whatever else, that it wasn't... It, it wasn't going to be approved. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, I would, <laughs> I wish I could go back and edit, obviously, in that book, but you, people don't, maybe they do now, but you have no way of understanding the kind of pressure I was under and the kind of fear that was my experience on a daily basis. So read those words with a grain of salt. And then just as far as the protests you talk about, that's what I was going to say when you were talking about all the ridiculousness of Obama and the madrasa, is that I protested when I felt that it was safe to do so. And I also protested um, by, by taking myself out of segments that the general public has no idea that I did that, but I refused to be a part of certain segments that were either um, not in line with how I felt about women um, or how I felt about certain things we've already discussed during this podcast. Um, and, you know, so more and more as I was there, I was behind the scenes taking myself out of certain situations that I didn't agree with. Are there things that you said while you were there? Because you're, the format of Fox and Friends is well known. A lot of banter and often politically oriented. Or are there things that you said that you look back and say, I wish I hadn't have done of that. Of course, of course. And I'd love to be able to tell you I know, I how know. those things came into my head. Yes. Well, and, and the implication, and I think you've said this, is that there was heavy producer control of what topics were discussed and in what way. So I get your uh, inference. So talk about the fear that you felt. And more than anything, Gretchen, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave earlier? Why didn't you say, you know what? This is a sick, toxic environment and women are being treated in ways they shouldn't be treated. And I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, Two things. You, uh, in the television business, as you know, there are very few jobs at the top. And I tried to leave on many occasions. Again, I can't say exactly the forces that were working against me as to why I was not able to, to get jobs elsewhere, but I'll let you infer from that again, too. And, you know, so even if that wasn't happening, there are very few jobs at the top. I was an anchor of the number one morning show on cable TV. And if you think about it, you know, you would have CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and you would have NBC, CBS, and ABC. So truly, where was I going to go that wasn't a lateral move or, or up? The second more important thing I would say is, why do women who face harassment and horrible things at work have to be the ones that have to move on? Like, th- this is what I'm trying to change now. Why, why do we automatically think mm-hmm. that women should be the ones that have to give up their whole freaking career that they've killed themselves for? Because allegedly you have predators on the loose. I mean, you know, no, that's so, a so, very fair point. And you yeah. have changed. You have helped change it. And Roger Ailes left Fox in disgrace. And that was part of what triggered a whole movement that has changed things in a significant way. How significantly do you think things have changed? A lot. I mean, David, I could have never envisioned any of this was going to happen in the way that it has. Like when you do something like what I did in suing Roger Ailes at Fox News for harassment and retaliation. I mean, I didn't know it was going to happen to me the next second, much less the next day or weeks. And well, what did you fear would happen to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, my lawyers warned me about everything. They said they'll, they'll malign you. They will come after you. They will. And that, that did happen. You know, every every night um, there was a different 
well-known host at Fox who would come out and be the latest one to say horrible things about me and that I was a liar. And it was like this campaign. But in other ways, I, you know, honestly, I feared for my life. And um, did you fear from your life because you were worried about some organized action against you going back to Roger and the sort of his paranoid side? I mean, I had a meeting with Roger once and I had Secret Service with me because I had been threatened. Uh, so I had Secret Service with me and he had these gigantic, I think Mossad, uh, <laughs> I think they were uh, veterans who were guarding him. We were meeting in a empty restaurant. It was like a, a mafia meeting. But were you worried about that or were you worried about people who, because you turned on Fox, Fox crazy viewers who would turn both. on you? Or? Both. But, but, the, but the craziness in our society has escalated dramatically since my lawsuit, right? And not because of my lawsuit, but because of the rhetoric. That, that's why the crazies had, have really um, come out. But yeah, I, 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 feared, I feared both. And ironically, I was by myself because my husband and I and my two children, who were teenagers at the time, were middle schoolers, we were supposed to be going to California for the All-Star Game, the baseball All-Star Game. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when I got fired, um, unexpectedly, I realized I had to file the suit as soon as possible. And so uh, I told my husband to take our children and, and to go because there was no way I could make it look like I was deserting, you know, my, my home after filing this lawsuit. I had to stand strong. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Gretchen, let me ask you about this, because one thing's very clear is that you love your kids dearly. I was really touched, by the way. I know one of your children had a health issue earlier in her life, and you had to give her steroids, which had potentially really negative impacts on her. I have a daughter yeah. who has a lifelong battle with epilepsy, and the things that we have poured into her to try and stop that is just sickening for me to think about. So I was feeling you about that. So I know how deeply Thank you. you care. I always say, by the way, there's no force in the world as great or powerful as a, a mother's love for their kids. I've seen it in my own life. But what about your kids and how did they handle all of this? And what did you tell them? And were they fearful? Oh, gosh, I hope not. Uh, I didn't tell them the, the scary parts. But when I sat them down uh, the night before I was going to file the lawsuit and uh, with my husband, and I said, well, mommy's been fired, and I'm going to do this big, bold thing tomorrow. And the first thing out of my son's mouth at the time was like, what's going to happen to our babysitter? <laughs> and I was like, I'm concerned about the babysitter, too, but what about mom? Mom, mom, mom just got fired. Uh, but but anyway, um, it was cute. And, uh, you know, they didn't listen. They were kids. They didn't understand what was going on. And then they left the next 
morning. And so they didn't see all the news trucks parked out in front of the house and they were gone for a couple of weeks. Um, but I will tell you, David, that as much as they were my paramount concern and the number one reason why I may not have done what I did, it's turned out that it was exactly the right thing to do for my children. And I've seen my courage transfer to my children. And that has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Two quick stories. Uh, my daughter had been facing some bullying at school. And when she went back to school after my lawsuit, a couple of weeks later, she came home. She said, Mom, she said, I finally found the courage to do something about it. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I told this one that and I told that one this. And she said, Mom, I did it because I saw you do it. Mm. And that was a life-changing event for me to see what I had done that I was so fearful of transfer to my child. And my son did the same thing a couple of weeks later when I was on CNN doing a town hall. And I came home and he was waiting for me in the kitchen. And he said, Mom, is it true what that other woman said on TV with you tonight that once every 73 seconds in America, a woman is assaulted or harassed in our country? Is that true, Mom? And I said, I'm so sorry to tell you that that is true. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, Mom, as a young man, I want to work to fix that. Mm. And I, at 12 years old, I hugged yeah, him amazing. so hard. And I, I thought, oh, my God, like this might turn out OK. And he wrote his college essay about what it was like to be a son in that kind of situation and how he feels now everything what he's learned from his mom and what he feels his duty is as a first responder as a man to stand up for women and to take that risk to be a man that defends women and and says she was treated poorly and to take that risk because guess what men also get retaliated against when they do that and so i I've, I've been so proud of what my what my kids have learn from this experience that they were in their formative years, they're going to take that with them for the rest of their lives. And even if it was just those two souls that I helped to change, it would be worth it. But I know I've helped millions of people that I'll never, ever meet. And so it's wide ranging. And you've started two organizations um, since that time, including one to beat back these NDAs and these forced arbitrations that would prevent women from making claims. You, you say things have changed dramatically. Talk about how you believe they, they've changed. And then I want to ask you about Donald Trump. Oh, God. Well, that's a good transition. So things have changed dramatically. Well, first of all, I have to wake up every day optimistic about this movement because I'm one of the people leading it. And when, when you're in this kind of work, you have to be optimistic because it's a slog, right? And so I see um, many things as victorious, while other people might not think there's been that much movement. But I'm living it every day, and so I know what the status is. Number one, women are being believed. That's it's unbelievable we even have to say that they weren't, but they're being believed. Predators are facing consequences. You know, Roger Ailes got a massive payout, even though they could have fired him for cause, and that's not happening anymore. When Les Moonves went down at CBS, they donated his, his $40 million to women's organizations, you know? That's a massive change. Matt Lauer was was fired. Uh, men are giving apologies. They're taking, you know, they're they're being held accountable for for these actions. So I do think that there's been massive progress. And then I will just say that at my nonprofit, Lift Our Voices, 
you know, we uh, have been active in changing the laws. And last year alone in 2022, in fact, right here in my home office, there's a picture of me with President Biden and the actual law that passed and the pen that he handed to me after it happened, where, you know, we have we have changed the law dramatically for survivors of sexual misconduct, where they can no longer be silenced with forced arbitration, which people have no idea what the hell that is. But basically, it means you can't go to an open court and everything is kept secret. And that's how the vicious cycle has continued for so long, as well as um, a short eight months later, we passed our second law, the Speak Out Act, which uh, eradicates NDAs for sexual misconduct as well. And these are two of the biggest labor law changes in the last 100 years. And for me to know that this is now my my legacy and that, um, as I said earlier, you know, changing the world for millions of people I won't ever meet is the greatest success of my life. This will be my legacy and I'm far from done working on other protected classes. But I think that... Um, I have taken a, a horrible experience over many years and have transformed that into something as positive as I possibly could have. And to know that I am making workplaces safer for millions of people is extremely gratifying. So about the aforementioned Donald Trump, he got elected president in 2016, uh, a few months after you got uh, fired. Fox. He got elected after a tape was released in which he boasted about sexual assault, something that he defended again in just the last week. He's been found liable of sexual abuse just in the last week as well, and defends that as well and dismisses those charges. And he is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And by the way, a lot of the defense of him has occurred on your old network. So on the one hand, you say, and I accept that a lot of progress has been made, but how can that be? You know, I have this conversation frequently about how can my organization and my work be so successful in moving all of these issues forward, while at the same time, we're seeing women's issues go back into the dark ages on some fronts with regard to abortion and Donald Trump. And other things. And I don't know if it's because people are so upset about those things that are being taken away that they are more apt to move forward on other issues. Does that rally them to come out? I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I don't know if I have a, a complete answer as to why so much good can be happening at the same time. There's, there's so much bad. Other than to say that there's no doubt in my mind that the reason that so much bad is happening is because of what Donald Trump has been able to get away with. You know, he owned a uh, for a while a beauty pageant. I think it was a teen. No, no, no. It was Miss. It was Miss. Uh, it, was, it was Miss America's competitor. It was Miss USA and Miss oh, Universe. Miss USA. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to the original question, which is, how much are the were these pageants? And I accept that there was talent involved and you had to represent yourself well on the stage and so on. But it just feels like it's of a piece, you know, women as objects. Yeah. And well, first of all, there's a total difference between Miss America and Miss USA, just for the record, because nobody understands this. And I've spent a lifetime trying to <laughs> teach people the, 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 the differences, which is 
uh, there there is no talent category in Miss USA, and it's strictly based on beauty, and there is no scholarship. I paid for my whole last year of Stanford University from becoming Miss America, so I'm not going to apologize for that. And I'm certainly not going to align myself with Miss USA or Miss Universe. I would have been dead last in that competition. So there, there are stark differences between the two. Um, and I'm, I'm, look, my life has worked in, in amazing, mysterious ways, and I've lived and learned along the way. And I'm not going to apologize for becoming Miss America. It was a wonderful opportunity. I utilized the talent that I had honed my entire life and my brain to, to get there. I learned incredible communication skills. And 25 years later or 30 years later, I came back and, and tried to bring it up to speed with where I thought women were in society by getting rid of swimsuit. So I have nothing to apologize for on on no. any of those fronts. It's it's helped me become who I am. I'm not soliciting an apology. Okay, so no, but I mean, I just, clear. I yeah, I just, I'm, I don't. It's part of who I am. I understand, uh, except everything that you just said. You, I know you were uh, vocal on Twitter last week during the CNN town hall. Tell me what your reaction to what you saw, and particularly his comments about E. Jean Carroll, the woman who successfully sued him in civil court for assaulting her and defaming her. Yeah, I think I said on Twitter that the the best thing other than a a guilty verdict was what she said to his lawyer when after the verdict came in where she shook his hand and said, you know, he did it. You know, look, it was disgusting at that town hall when people laughed in the audience when he called Eugene Carroll a whack job, which, by the way, is defaming her again. Yeah, apparently they're considering a, another suit. Yeah. Uh, it, look, that just puts us again back into the dark ages of all the work that I'm trying to do to move us out of it. And I'm going to say a really profound statement here because it's totally true. And it's, I'm really upset that this is true about America, but it's the reality. Passing two bipartisan bills into law last year was easier than changing culture in American society for how we view sexual assault and harassment. That's a huge statement. It is. Because it was not it was not easy to pass bipartisan legislation in the most hyper-political time of our generation. So, you know, the culture is just and and he's not helping the culture well, because for sure. he's he's and that audience certainly wasn't by laughing at something like that and putting us back into the 1920s about how people feel about people who come forward. Just shifting slightly, because it's a related point. As someone who spent much of your life in television, and you know, I mentioned earlier that you said that Cable Ailes' inspiration was that people were getting a lot of news, and they are, and that's more true today than ever, so they want to hear opinions. But it feels like everybody chooses their source of information whether it's online or whether it's on television, and their views are affirmed, but they're not necessarily informed, and it drives us all deeper into silos, uh, which may be a good business model. I think it probably is a good business model. Certainly Fox proves that, but it's it degrades the public debate. It degrades our sense of community. 100%. And let me be clear. When I said that line about that I thought it was an ingenious idea to develop opinion television. That was 30 years ago, 25 years ago when Fox started. I wasn't saying that that was a good idea now for the exact reason that you just said. We've now, first of all, it's way past opinion television. 
And we've now morphed into only wanting to listen to what we already agree with. And that is not going to get us anywhere. Where you know, pe- Some people think I'm still on Fox when I walk through an airport because they've never even heard about my story or what I did or because they only watch Fox. Um, and, and that, that's where we, that's where we are now. And, um, you know, brings us full circle as to why my work now of reaching across the aisle is even more important because it's just not happening. And the idea that we can find common ground is, is huge. And that's what I'm all about. You know, I'm, I've been a registered independent my entire life. I, I know you don't like that because they can't win elections, but <laughs> I see it on both sides from time to time. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of me out there, me's out there, who feel like they have nowhere to go, and especially in this hyper political time. Yeah, I think that we have a crisis of misaligned incentives. I think for the media platforms, the uh, incentive is to keep people watching, and and they've discovered that outrage keeps them watching. And for politicians in a very polarized world where all you have to worry about in most cases is a primary, they are afraid to be venturesome and reach across the aisle because they don't want to antagonize the most strident voices in their own tribe. 100%. I faced that so much when I was trying to get Republicans to come onto both of my bills. You know, yeah. they were worried that they were that Trump was going to primary them. And they were right, you know? Yeah. So they say they would tell me, yeah, I'll support it, but I won't actually co-sponsor because I don't want my name, I don't want to be known that my name's on it early on. Yeah, we're, we're just, well, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, but uh, we're in a totally different environment than we, than we were five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, listen, I so appreciate your time. I appreciate your voice out there on these, on this, these important issues. And uh, you stood alone and made a courageous battle. Others joined you later, a lonely battle. And uh, you deserve great credit for that. So I'm really, really pleased to uh, spend time with you. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.